Jade Flynn, also known as Yana Durambal, is an emerging Wiradjuri elder, facilitator, educator and musician. Traditional owners and custodians have an ancient mandate, which is to look after mother, which is Mother Earth. And so that's what's happening now. So the Wiradjuri traditional owners are trying to make sure that sites aren't destroyed, that Mother Earth isn't disrupted, because without the mother we have nothing. As part of the new initiative, Gunagal Mayini Wiradjuri Dayalang Enterprise, he facilitates cultural immersion days for people of all cultures to connect with country and learn about local Wiradjuri history. Yana Darambal also conducts welcome to country and smoking ceremonies with the permission of senior elders around Bathurst, New South Wales. We met up with Jade on Wiradjuri country here at Rahamim Ecology Centre. So we're here with Jade Flynn, also known as Yana Darambal. And Jade, I want to welcome you to Rahamin. We're meeting here on Wiradjuri country and we all pay our respects to yourself and all the elders and give thanks for being here on Wiradjuri country. Mandangu, thank you. <laughs> so um, to start off, we usually ask people on our podcast thresholds about um, your spiritual background, your maybe you had a religious background, or connection to country of some sort that you can remember as a child. Would you be able to tell us any memories that come to mind when I, when I say those words? Yeah, sure. So I guess the first thing that comes to mind is the red dirt. Um, I grew up in a place called Kobar, which is out in Nyampa country. Um, and my family out there are part of the Bilad Kiali, which is the Balar tree people of the Nyampa nation, um, through my father. And... Yeah, my first sort of spiritual connection, I guess, that I can remember is just being in the red dirt. How old were you at that time? What, what else was going on around you? Um, it's probably as young as I can remember, so maybe two. Um, I remember a feeling of peace and belonging, um, but there was a lot of chaos around me at the time, just with uh, family life and, and whatnot. So... Um, I felt like I had a, like a, like a guide with me or, or like a, someone else there that was just walking with me through the whole thing, mm-hmm. which I later on in life kind of identified as, as one of my, um, so I've got, I've got a couple of ancestor spirits that walk with me. Um, like I believe that I've got a couple of ancestor spirits that walk with me and later on when things were explained to me. I kind of realised that that's what that was at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one of my own ancestors walking with me and protecting me and showing me things and just comforting me when, when the world around me was not so good. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? Oh, uh, yeah, look, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, like, my early childhood was um, very difficult uh, and disrupted. Um, my stepfather was quite racist um, I was my mother's first child. Yeah, it just made for a very difficult life for me. So I wasn't really allowed to mix with my Aboriginal cousins and Aboriginal family. My father's Aboriginal. And I was pretty much segregated from them by my stepfather. So the only contact I really had was through school or social events. 
where my cousins would you know get around me and say, "Oh, your dad loves you," and you're you know you're an aunt pa, you know we we're here, we care about you, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really have that every day, every week connection with mm-hmm. with my like my father or my cousins and, and aunties and uncles and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So coming back to that presence that you feel in the red dirt mm-hmm. from the age of about two, mm-hmm. what was what was it like in the family? Was there anything that nurtured that in you from your family? Um, yeah, my cousins. Mm-hmm. And through the school that I went to, Cobar Public School, um, all the Aboriginal kids got to do like certain activities and go out bush and I lived very close to the bush, so as soon as I was able to ride my bike and just go off and right, I'd come home when the street lights come up, I'd like turn on Jade, you know, I'd just go off into the bush on my own. Wow. So I sought that kind of refuge, mm-hmm. I guess, like in, in the bush and just as soon as I could get out there on my own, I would just go. Mm-hmm. But, but my cousins were really that connection. They were mm-hmm. the ones that kept me aware of who I am um, and sort of kept me grounded and, you know, kept me informed about my own sort of place in, in Yampa society and that kind of thing. Mm. So it was mostly my older female cousins that kind of kept that um, kept that stuff going with me. Mm. If it wasn't for them, I wouldn't really know who I was at all, like, mm. like at this point in life. Yeah. Were there rituals and um, ceremonies and things in your life to mark stages of growth not necessarily um i got to participate in a fair bit of ceremony um like smoking cleansing ceremony and a few other little bits and pieces but not in a way that would have traditionally been done for young like aboriginal boys Mm. Um, so i haven't been put through law or anything like that Mm -hmm. a lot of those ways have been lost to Mm -hmm. my mom um, Mm -hmm. because of the impact of colonization Mm -hmm. um so minimal Minimal ceremonies, really. Like, I probably do more ceremony here on Wiradjuri country than I... Well, I definitely do more ceremony here on Wiradjuri country than I do than I did on Nyampa country. Mm. And, and by the by, I probably know more about my Wiradjuri heritage and Wiradjuri law, L-O-R-E, than I do about Nyampa. Mm. Um, and that's just because of availability of elders and people that are knowledge holders and that kind of thing. In Nyampa country, like in my family in particular there weren't that many people that held the kind of knowledges that, you know, would allow us to do those ceremonies and rituals and that sort of, that sort of thing. If anything, we were lucky that we were even surviving because of the impact of colonisation and the racism and the hate that existed out in that part of the world. It was pretty hardcore back in the day. Um, and my nan's Yorta Yorta, so I don't know anything about my Yorta Yorta heritage at all. She was taken by her grandfather from Yorta Yorta country, which is down near Shepparton, when she was very, very young, into Nyampa country, and she married into the Nyampa mob. So my Yorta Yorta nan married my Nyampa grandfather. Hmm. How does it feel to be to have that disconnected story, um, you know, that's been that disruption of your lineage? And does that, is that something that you think about? <clears throat> um, yeah, all the time. Mm. Um, it's a sense of unfairness, mm. um, a sense of injustice. Um, sometimes it's a, it's even a hate of racism and racist behaviour. But at the same time, it's, you know, it's like I said when I was a little kid, you just accept life as it comes and that's it. 
And it's not until you get a bit older that you realise that you can make decisions and you can change the path that you're on that you can actually do that. Mm. And I feel like, you know, as I've grown older, I've been able to realise that that choice is mine, mm. that I choose how I react to a situation, good or bad, whatever the situation is. Um, ultimately, I have the power to make that choice. That's a power that no one can take away from me. So tell, take us on a bit of a journey about you know, how you ended up following, you know, t- taking that choice yourself and feeling, I guess, empowerment through discovering maybe, I don't know if you put that word on it, but uh, feeling empowered to learn more about your, your traditional culture and your identity and how that's led you to what you're doing today. Um, so when I was very young, from about the age of five or six, I guess, actually probably since I was born, like my mother was involved with the Baptist church for a while in Cobar. So I used to go to Sunday school and all that sort of stuff, learn about Jesus. And then later on, she became a Pentecostal. And so, of course, I was dragged along with that as well. I have thoughts and feelings about all that that I probably won't share on this podcast because I don't want to offend anyone. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it was, I'm grateful that I had those experiences I'm grateful that I was able to get an understanding about what spirituality is and how it affects people and kind of how institutions like churches operate and work and influence people. And, you know, um, I think there's good in every circle and I think there's good in every person. Um, But I think we're also capable of very bad, bad things as well. So, yeah, going to churches when I was young, I think uh, helped me to appreciate where other people are at and be a bit compassionate, be a bit patient and not jump the gun when someone's acting irrationally or in an angry way or whatever. Mm -hmm. There's always kind of a a reason behind it. Um, So I guess it taught me to, to think before I judged. And then when I moved to Bathurst in 98, I think I was 17, I was still quite involved with the Pentecostal church, Um, still quite getting quite strong in my Aboriginal identity, like my, you know, my Nyampa, Yorior and Wurundjeri identity. And there just came a point where one of those kind of ways of being had to give in. Um, And so I decided to drop the Pentecostal sort of side of things mm. and focus more on my, my own dreaming mm. <clears throat> and my identity as a, you know, autochthonous First Nation sovereign person. Mm. Um, and that's when I probably felt the most liberated when I made that decision to, to kind of go, look, I'm just going to follow my ancestors to the best that I can, mm-hmm. um, knowing full well that most Aboriginal people are quite spiritual. They feel the land, they feel spirits, they feel, you know, that kind of thing from my observations a little bit more amplified than than non-Aboriginal people do. Mm. Um, So there was always that kind of sense of spirituality, even as a kid, like I was saying, Mm. in the red dirt, feeling like there was that person or that entity with me and never really equating that to Jesus or God or the Bible or anything like that. It was just familiar. So now you work in a lot of immersion programs and experiences providing, uh, giving people a 
a glimpse, in, a window into your world that you've always known. And um, it seems to me it's a, it's a great privilege for anyone who gets to come on these immersion programs with you and the other elders. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and also a bit how you came into that work? So when I first moved here to Bathurst and Wiradjuri country, I didn't actually know that I have Wiradjuri lineage. Mm. Um, I only found that out through sitting with some of the older knowledge holders in the area. We did the whole blackfella thing of, you know, well, who's your mob, what's your last name, who's your family? Oh, yeah, you're related to that one's cousin, you're related to that one. Okay, you're up. that auntie is related to that cousin over there. And just the whole joining the dots thing, mm. which which is a really common thing for Aboriginal people that don't know each other to kind of sit down and go, oh, what's your last name, who's your mob, all that kind of stuff. So we did that. I did that when I first moved here. I, I knew enough about cultural manners as a young person that I needed to introduce myself to the elders of this area. Um, and I knew that I'd normally, you know, traditionally I would have done that by lighting a fire at the, at the edge or the, the common ground between Nyampa and Wiradjuri country and wait for the, the elders or the warriors to come and get me and ask me what I'm doing there. But, you know, we don't do that these days. So I just knew that I had to find Wiradjuri elders, introduce myself and, um, and offer my alliance or services or, mm. you know, make sure that they knew that I was here, why I was here and ask them for permission to do my own ceremony, mm. which I did. Um, I met Uncle Bill that year and, you know, found out sort of who was who in the zoo, so to speak, who the traditional owners were, who the gammon ones were. Um, gammon is a, a word that means, I guess, dodgy or not real. Uh, mm. um, and, yeah, so I, I, I guess I showed my cultural manners. I told Uncle Bill why I was here, introduced myself to the ancestors here, and then, like I said, found out that actually, by the by, you, you have lineage here. Um, mm. which was really interesting for me mm. um, and really kind of surprising too. Like I had no idea. Um, and that's through um, the Narangi clan. So back along my family tree, there's a, a lady, a Wiradjuri lady called Kitty Narangi, who's from the Narangi clan from here in this, this area. Mm -hmm. And she married a fellow called Jimmy Kiwong, um, who's Yampa. So, so that's sort of where that lineage came in. And, yeah, it was really cool. It was really nice to, to have these older people and these traditional owners and knowledge holders go, well, when it comes down to it, son, you're one of us. Mm. And, you, you, you know, if you want to learn law here, you're allowed to by, mm. by the old ways. Um, you're allowed to and we will teach you if you want to do that. If you want to sit with us and walk with us, we will allow that. Mm. And that was a real honour for me. Yeah. And I guess I've been doing it ever since is that some is that a typical pathway for people rediscovering their identity that they would approach the local elders and ask around for for their traditional lineage i don't know yeah. i'm not sure i think it varies um i guess i was lucky to be taught by my nyampa mob about the basics of cultural manners which mm -hmm. is you don't go into someone else's country without asking permission, without letting them know who you are um, and without showing respect. So I knew that from an early age. And I guess that's testament to some of the knowledge that the Nyampa mob where I grew up still held. But a lot of people don't 
kind of even have that. Mm. Um, so I, I guess I'm lucky or blessed or whatever you want to call it, that I had at least that little bit of guidance to be able to move on to the next step in my journey. Mm. But a lot of people are so disconnected because of all of the disruption that happened um, around invasion and, and all that sort of stuff mm. that they, you know, the circles are broken mm. and they don't maybe know what cultural menace are, for example. They might, you know, a lot of Aboriginal people that are out there, unfortunately, they've either been dispersed or taken from their homelands and they don't know kind of exactly who they are, especially sort of my generation and, the, and some of the younger ones. Mm. And it's hard to join the dots. It's really hard. Like I had a part of the map already there because of whatever circumstances, because that knowledge was still retained within my family and within the people that I ended up being introduced to. But a lot of people don't have a map. Mm. Um, so they know that they're Aboriginal. They might know what tribe they are, but they won't necessarily know what customs that their tribe had or what ceremonies they did or that kind of deeper kind of information. Mm. Yeah. What does it mean to you to be Wiradjuri? I mean, it's, it's it occurs to me that here in Bathurst we know about Windradine and we know what a remarkable warrior he was during the time of the invasion and um, martial law here in Bathurst. And tell me a bit about what it means to be Wiradjuri for you. So to be Nyampa, to be Yorta Yorta and Wiradjuri um, is in incredibly amazing for me. I have ties and connections to most of the state because of my blood lineage and my family lineage. Mm. So I'm very proud of that. I, you know, I, like I said before, I probably know a little bit more about Wiradjuri culture than I do about Nyampa and Yorta Yorta because of the law that I've been taught by the old people in this area. Mm. Um, so to be connected in with the Wiradjuri is, it's really liberating. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's something that I'm really proud of and I'm proud that my kids have that connection mm. as well. Um, and they know who they are, like they know that they're Nyampa, they know they're Yorta Yorta and they know that they're Wiradjuri as well. Mm. And then there's connections through cousins and through marriages and all that sort of stuff to pretty much most of the tribes in New South Wales, most of the First Nations in New South Wales. So mm. it's all connected. Um, and that's why, like I was saying before, when you get Aboriginal people that are meeting each other for the first time, they'll always go, what's your last name, what's your mob? Mm. And with your children, have you... Have you been trying to reinstate some of the ceremonies through through their lives um, that you maybe missed out on yourself? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I've done ceremony with my kids since they were born. Oh. Um, and I'll continue to teach them that. And um, and they're familiar with it. It's normal for them. Mm. It's not just this thing that they're going to discover later on in life. It's, it's part of who they are. It's part of mm. their upbringing. Can you take us through a little bit of that? Because we're quite interested in ceremony ourselves, you know, um, the need for ritual in our lives to mark significant occasions and growth in life. And uh, that's something that we do at Rahamim as well. And I'd be really interested if you could share something about, um, you know, the stages of life that you honour. Ceremony isn't just something that we do to mark those occasions that you're talking about. Ceremony is something that we can do whenever we feel that it's needed. Mm. Um, same with some of our healing ceremonies. Yeah. So it's not, um, so we do have 
one ceremony that I came to about that's a regular thing that wasn't necessarily to do with marking an occasion in anyone's life, but it was to do with the country. Um, up on Walu last year, the alignment of Jupiter and Mars. Mm -hmm. So we did a ceremony, myself and some of the other traditional owners, um, where we had five fires set out in a certain array and we linked those fires with Oka. And there were certain things that we had to do that I won't go into, but mm -hmm. it was a once in a hundred year ceremony. Mm -hmm. um, so that one was to, we were taught that by some of the older traditional owners so that we can first get the knowledge so that we can pass it on when the time is right, mm -hmm. but also to observe that particular ceremony mm -hmm. uh, to make sure that it keeps happening. Because a lot of the ceremonies to do with the land, which are mostly done by men, um, a lot of those ceremonies have been lost. Mm -hmm. um, like singing the rivers and, and singing um, springs back to life and stuff like yeah. that. Mm -hmm. so, so that one was taught to us so that we can continue that and, and teach our young ones and, and make sure that it happens into the future. Mm. So that's... And this was on Walu. This was on Walu, Mount Panorama. Mount Panorama. Um, yeah. Are there a lot of ceremonies happening up there still? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So people go up there for private ceremony. Um, people that have been given permission. I mean, some people that haven't been given permission go on a private ceremony too, but that's, that's up to them. Mm. Um, it's not really something that... I don't think it's cool, like if you don't have the right permissions to do that sort of thing, but people do it. Mm. But there's a, a lot of ceremony that happens by um, Wiradjuri people and not just Wiradjuri people, but other nation groups go up there as well. Mm. Um, the place is still an active ceremonial site. It's not, it's not a, that was the past and nobody does that stuff anymore. Like we're a living culture. You know, we don't wear laplaps and use spears anymore. We drive utes and we mm. shoot, you know, use rifles when we want to shoot kangaroos. Mm. We've evolved, um, but we are still who we are because of our lineage and because of our ancestors. We're mm. still the same people. Mm. Mm. Um, we just live in a different age. So, we yeah, the there's ceremony happening up there very often, all the time, mm. um, constantly. That's remarkable. And for those people who are listening who maybe are unfamiliar with what's happening on Mount Panorama Wallow at the moment, um, mm. can you describe what's going on, you know, with the local council versus the traditional owners of that um, mountain? Sure. So traditional owners and custodians have an ancient mandate, which is to look after Mother, which is Mother Earth. Mm. And so that's what's happening now. So mm -hmm. the Wiradjuri traditional owners are trying to make sure that sites aren't destroyed, that Mother Earth isn't disrupted, mm -hmm. because without the Mother we have nothing. Mm -hmm. So that's one of our most important roles as Aboriginal people is to make sure that she's being looked after mm -hmm. and also each other more. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, they're two of the most basic responsibilities um, of custodians and traditional owners. So from a traditional owner point of view, um, disturbing sites and, and just digging the mother up for no good reason is really upsetting. And it's, it's basically, it's not okay. It's mm. not okay. We don't, 
we don't condone it, we don't like it. Um, yes, progress happens. Yes, towns have got to be built. Yes, houses have to be built, all that sort of stuff. That's fine. That's why Aboriginal cultural heritage surveys are done to identify what areas are more culturally sensitive than others. Mm-hmm. So with Walu, um, it is... Uh, it's described as a men's initiation place, which is correct. But to get into that a little bit more, Wailu is a complex of ceremonial sites and ceremonial areas. And it's a complex joined up by pathways. Mm. Um, so the whole area isn't just for men. There is, there is a specific area, which is for women, which I'm not going to speak about too much, but I'll, I feel like I can talk about just the basics of what that area is without going into the women's dreaming side of stuff. Yeah. So it's it's basically a drop-off point um, where the women would hand over the young boys to the warriors so that they could go through law and through initiation. Yeah. And then there's another area, which is Sulman Park, where they have the Inland Sea of Sound, yeah. which is a Burbank area, which is a everyone come together and celebrate area. Yeah. So the men... Sorry, the women would take the boys up a certain part of the mountain. They would basically use that women's area where they want to build the go-kart track as a, as a holding area, as a, as a place where they would wait for the men to come and take the boys. Um, they'd have their own ceremony there, which again, I'm not even going to talk about. Um, and then the boys would be handed over and then they would go on to the next part of the challenge of going through initiation. And so there's different areas set up all over the mountain, which are for different parts of that initiation mm. and that challenge for the young man to become a man and a warrior. Mm. So it's much more complicated than just a men's initiation site. Um, it's much more nuanced than that. Mm. There are areas that only elders are supposed to sit in. There are ancestral trees up there, which are trees that are very, very old, and they are attributed to either a family group or to individual people. And then the idea is that that family or the people from that, you know, from that individual's line can go and visit that tree. And by doing so, they're visiting that person. Mm. And these are the things that are up there that nobody knows about. I think that's wonderful to hear all of the, yeah, it's like a tapestry up there of yeah. sacred sites. Well, it is. Yeah. The whole... The whole area is sacred, mm-hmm. not just any artifacts that might be picked up or might not be picked up, um, and not just carved trees mm. that have already, you know, dozens have been cut down, which is reported in a few early um, anthropological reports mm. by people like Gresha. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a guy called Patrickson or something like that. Don't quote me on that one. But it's like a clash of cultures. And a clash of ideas about how a place should be used and, and honoured and respected. And it seems that the people that want to develop Walu, it seems that they believe that their reasons are more important mm-hmm. than an ancient culture. Mm-hmm. And that's what it feels like. It feels like Aboriginal culture gets dusted off and paraded around when it suits certain people to say, hey, look, you know, look how good everything is with the Aboriginal people. But then every other day of the year, we just get 
pummeled and, and, and our culture gets destroyed and we get blamed for things and it's just, yeah, it's tricky. But with the mountain, people want to develop it. People want to build racetracks up there. They want to build go-kart tracks up there. I guess the mob here don't really want a go-kart track built on a women's area. It's mm. as simple as that. Mm. It's been known as a women's area for tens of thousands of years mm. and council have paid for a lot of survey work to indicate that. And then there's argue, there's arguments on semantics about whether or not there's artefacts found up there. Mm. But most of the artefacts were removed from the top of Wiley Mount Panorama. There was a big riot back in the 80s, I think, or the late 70s, when the motorcycle races were up there. And there were projectiles thrown at the police and, and the police did baton charges and all this stuff. And, um, and after that riot happened, um, most of the missiles or rocks and bits and pieces that were up there were removed and taken somewhere. Mm. Now, a lot of those rocks were actually artifacts. So there's some people, I guess, in the community that are saying, oh, there's no artifacts up there. Well, mm. there are. And the artifacts are, for Wiradjuri people, I'm assuming that they're sacred objects. Would that be correct? Generally speaking, yeah. um, but they're, um, a lot of artifacts are proof of occupation, like proof of you know, mm. that we were there, that, that it was a site that was used for one reason or another, depending on what the artifact is. Mm -hmm. And um, I believe in some, in some laws, perhaps it's international laws, you know more about this than me, but it's not just the physical uh, artifacts, it's also the intangible connection that's been going on for thousands of years. Yeah. Can so, you say a little bit about that? So the intangible cultural heritage value mm. is something that we try to highlight. So the story of Walu, you can look it up on YouTube. There's a, if you type in mm -hmm. Walu Bathurst, there's a YouTube video that Uncle Bill Allen mm -hmm. says. Yeah. And the story of Walu talks about the shape of the mountain mm. being of the warrior Walu who was struck down by his brother Garnabula over jealousy because of a, um, you know, a, a, a challenge that they'd done with each other. And the, to look at Walu from a certain angle, it looks like someone on their side has been struck down. Mm -hmm. What some developers want to do, including the go-kart track people, is they want to take a whole bunch, of, like up to six foot off the top of the mountain, which mm -hmm. will forever change um, the shape of Walu. Um, which impacts greatly on that, um, you know, the intangible cultural heritage of the place. If that happens, then it's basically destroying that intangible. Um, the intangible is the stuff that you can't touch, you can't pick it up, you can't look at it, but it's those beliefs. Mm. It's like it's like me going into a church and going, well, I can't see your God, so I'm going to build a go-kart track there. Mm. Walu is a place of deep reflection and worship for us. Mm. Um, it's like one of our cathedrals with the importance that we put on it, mm. the things that we do there. And you can't see the spirits that we're talking about. Mm. And you can't see some of the interactions that go on, but it's just as important as what's happening down at the Catholic Church or the United mm. Church or, yeah. or wherever. But that same value isn't attributed to the Aboriginal people of this place for whatever reason. 
a hangover from the white Australia policy, I think. But mm-hmm. it's just, you know, there's still a lot of misunderstanding about how all that stuff works. Mm. You know, the aim was to annihilate us completely. We're not supposed to be here. There was a, a willful and wanton kind of attempt to completely wipe us off the face mm. of the planet. Mm. So I think that, I think the fact that we are here, we are strong, we are still doing ceremony, we are still using our sacred places, I think that can kind of upset a lot of people. Mm. That's something I've never considered before, that if they take six metres off the top of Walu, that you lose that profile of the body that you can see now. I mean, that would be a complete disconnection of the story. Yeah. From disconnecting and making the story meaningless, really. Um, which is Well, it takes away the value of it. Yeah. In, in many ways, yeah. Which essentially is, it seems to me, you know, destroying well, we, we call it, the culture. Well, I, I call it cultural vandalism. Yeah. So in terms of your journey through into discovery of your identity and now I've heard it said that you are to be regarded as an elder in your own right. Um, and would, is that something, is that an accurate way to describe you, an emerging elder or an elder? And, and I'd, I'd still say emerging elder. <laughs> yeah. But there are some elders that are just saying you're an elder now. Mm. Um, and that's not because of my age. It's because of the knowledge that I now hold, mm. um, which has been passed to me in trust, knowing that I will protect that knowledge knowing that I'll pass it on when the time's right and to people that it's appropriate to pass it on to. So, I, yeah, I consider myself an emerging elder or a mm. knowledge holder, definitely a traditional owner um, with lineage who, who can speak for country. Yeah. And that's important um, to kind of articulate that. I'm not just some gammon guy that's coming from Cobar that's tooting my own horn and thinking I'm all that and, you know, saying I'm the big man and I'm really good. Um I take this responsibility very seriously mm-hmm. and reluctantly. It's not something that I would. It's hard. It's hard work. Like knowing, knowing what I know, mm-hmm. and knowing what I can't share, is very hard work. And I, yeah, I guess I do take the responsibility very seriously. And speaking for country is not something that's done lightly either. And it's, and it's it's complicated because. In this part of Wiradjuri country, we don't speak for other parts of Wiradjuri country. So, for example, we would never, you would never get a, an Aboriginal elder or a traditional owner get up and say, I speak for all of Wiradjuri country. And if you ever do, you know they're gammon. Mm-hmm. Um, but I speak for this part of Wiradjuri country because I've been taught the knowledge from this part of Wiradjuri country. And, but I would never, you know, cut any other community's grass. And if I was to go and do cultural practice in other communities, it would only be at the invitation of the traditional owners and elders from that community. Mm. So, for example, Orange have asked Uncle Bill and myself to go over and do smoking ceremony um, on certain occasions, and that's at their invitation. But we would never invite ourselves over to do that sort of thing. And with the cultural immersion that we do here in Bathurst, Mm. we would never go onto someone else's country to do that cultural immersion unless we were asked by those elders to go over. So that's us observing cultural manners. Mm. So it's complicated. Mm. I'm curious about that phrase, speaking for country. Mm. And what does that mean? And um, how, how, do you, how do you feel you are 
speaking for country. So speaking for country is something that the people who have the lineage and the cultural authority to do that, they're the ones that can speak for country. And that comes from your blood lineage and that comes from um, the knowledge that you have been taught. And speaking for country is, it's like when you have the power of attorney mm -hmm. for someone. Like if you, you know, your mum or dad might be crook and you have the power of attorney to speak for that person. Mm -hmm. Well, country can't speak for herself. Mm -hmm. So we speak for her. So you're saying you are like the voice of earth in this patch of earth. On the, in this area. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is why we try to stop, you know, um, unnecessary damage to her mm. and to our sites. Mm. As you travel around your patch of, <laughs> your patch of Wiradjuri country, um, how do you feel when you're, when you're engaging with country? Like, and do you have particular practices that you yourself would use to connect so that you feel like you're embodying the voice of, of this patch of Wiradjuri country? Yeah, there's, there's a few customs that we do depending on where we are and what the landscape is. Um, I think the main thing is when I'm wandering around, whether it's this country or other people's country, it's, it's always to listen to it. It's always to just be, take the time to actually be there. Some would call it meditation mm. and it'll talk. It'll, you'll, you'll hear its stories. Look at what kind of plants are there. Look at how the clouds form. Look at where the hills are. Look at where the water runs. It all tells a story. Mm. So when I'm wandering around, my name's Wanderer, Yana mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, I try and listen, I try and observe. Some of the, like one of the customs that I can tell you about is when we're going into an area that we know is significant, we'll grab some of the dirt and we'll mix it with our sweat and rub it onto the back of our neck so it mm -hmm. takes on our essence mm -hmm. so that the spirits and ancestors from that area know that we are there mm -hmm. and know that we are there with respect. Um, and another little custom that we do is when there's a body of water, Generally, we believe that there are water spirits um, in that area. So we'll pick up a small stone, throw it in and introduce ourselves to that water spirit, all those water spirits. So it's another one of our customs that we do. Mm. Um, the same with moving in and out of different country between one nation group to the next. That dirt ritual, or that dirt custom is something that I do. Um, if I can't light a fire, sometimes I'll light a fire between Wiradjuri and Yampa just so that, because that's the old way to do it. But if I can't light a fire, I'll get out of the car. I'll get that dirt. And I, you know, mm. That's my way of showing respect to the ancestors and moving from one place to the next. Mm. Mm. So that's, you know, that's a couple of the little customs that we do. There's more, but I, you know, there's some that I can tell you. Yeah. You mentioned that you're, when you come to a place, you take time to fully be there. Hmm. Um, what's happening for you in that moment? Sometimes nothing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a, like a sort of peace. And sometimes um, you'll feel the history of that part of country. Sometimes it's a mix, I don't know. Like for some places, when I first moved to Bathurst, I moved to a place in South Bathurst there, and there's a creek that runs through... There's a park and a creek that runs down there close to Currawong Street or Currajong Street or whatever it is. And I had a real, I had a, I walked through that place 
just doing my exploration as I when I first moved here, and, and I felt, um, I felt terrible, I felt horrible. Um, mm. I felt a lot of turmoil, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, and then later on, I was told that there was a massacre in that place, mm. um, and so that sort of, I, yeah, that justified why I felt like I did at the time, um, and there were a lot of bad things that happened all over this country and sometimes you can feel it mm. depending on where it is and, and what it is but there's also a lot of places of great peace um, in this country as well so mm. that the whole trying to be there and be present is about just paying respect to yourself as well mm. um, we're all so busy we've got deadlines and timelines and you know we work nine to five and we've got to do this and we've got to do that and we've got a, a diary that's full and a lot of the time we don't take that opportunity to kind of just be there. Mm. Um, so that's, I guess, part of our, part of our, who we are is to just, you know, be here and listen, listen mm. to what country's saying. Mm. And sometimes it sings and sometimes it cries out in pain. Mm. Thank you. And it seems that, to me, just as an observation, just thinking of those who want to take the six metres off the top of Walu, that whole worldview mm. clashes very strongly with that other worldview that you've just described of being fully present and listening to country and taking the time and taking the time out of your timetable mm. <laughs> to do that and um, the powerful impact that that could have on people. Do you sometimes notice that, um, you know, the clash of worldviews in, in All the time. around here? Yeah. All the time, mm. yeah. There's a different value system put on land mm. um, between traditional owners and Westerners. It's been like that since invasion. Mm. Classic example, the potato patch incident. I'm not sure what year it was. I think it was the early 1800s. Um, there was a farmer down on the river just near the low-level bridge and he was growing potatoes um, and some of uh, Winderdine's family was wandering past and he was feeling generous so he gave them some potatoes, dug them up out of the ground, here you go, have some potatoes. Um, now the potato is very similar to a yam, which is like a native potato, mm -hmm. which grew in that area anyway. So uh, a little sometime later that same family came through and helped themselves to some of those potatoes. And the, the guy that owned the land um, took offence and, you know, according to him, that was stealing. So he shot some of them. And that, that, that happened to be Winderdine's family and one of his wives and some of his children. Mm. And it was all over a misunderstanding of land mm. in a way. Mm. So the Wiradjuri law was that you can take what you need from the mother as long as you don't take too much and as long as you don't disrespect and you share what you take. Mm -hmm. So by Wiradjuri law, they were well within their rights to come and take what was in the land. Yeah. But by Western law, that man had a garden and he was growing produce to take to market for profit. Mm. So it's a completely different value that's put on the land. Mm. And it was that clash of values that caused that disruption at that time. Mm. That hasn't changed. That mentality is still the same. What can I get out of the land? Mm. How much money can I make out of it? Versus what can the land do for you? How mm. much healing can it give you? Mm. 
what is it telling you? How much wisdom can you take from it? Mm. So it's that's that you know that's the the classic old traditional owners versus Westerners kind of thing, mm. or you know Aboriginal values versus Western values kind of thing. Um, mm. Western values are more leaning towards the kind of oh, what's the word where you buy and sell stuff? Capitalism. Yeah. Whereas the Aboriginal value system is more to do with looking after the mother, looking after each other. Mm. And that way you'll have all the wealth that you need, you'll have all the food that you need, you'll have all the medicine that you need, all the water. If you look after the mother earth, you have everything you need to have a happy life. But the Western value is what can I buy, what can I sell, how much can I make? Mm. And that's really what's happening up there right now. Yeah. It's that difference of value. Mm. When you consider what's happening in Wiradjuri country here around Bathurst, you see what's going on, do you have much hope for progress for, in recognition for Wiradjuri people and other Aboriginal peoples? Um, given the current generation that are in leadership, um, no. <laughs> but the younger people that are coming up, I have great hope. Um, some of the graduates that are being turned out of CSU here at the moment that are going through these immersions that we're talking about, um, some of the traditional owners are embedding the Wiradjuri perspective into all the course offerings, for example. So that's so so that Wiradjuri culture and perceptions are present. They're there. They're not just something that isn't talked about or, or brought up to the fore. Then it's it's part of the whole deal now. Mm. So those graduates that are coming out, I have a lot of faith in. Mm -hmm. um, the next generation of leaders I have a lot of faith in the ones that are in there now I think it's too late for them to change their minds um, I think they're still stuck in the the old white Australia policy days mm -hmm. unfortunately um, I mean some of them are capable of doing a turn but I don't think most of them are mm -hmm. so I guess give it a generation or two and um Things will be better, hopefully. Mm, mm. Well, that's what we hope for. That's why we do what we do. Mm -hmm. So which departments of the university and which other sorts of groups are you taking on to country through your immersion programs? What's, what's happening there? Oh, so um, with the, the schools at the university, I guess the Centre for Law and Justice in particular um, have been doing a lot of cultural immersion and... They get um, some of the traditional owners to lecture into some of their courses as well to do mm -hmm. with native title and, and um, other other bits and pieces around law. Yeah. Um, so they've got a, a pretty strong, I guess, Wiradjuri perspective in their course offering. Mm -hmm. And the graduates, excuse me, the graduates that they're turning out, um, this year will be the fourth year that the traditional owners here have engaged with one cohort, so they're going to graduate going through the whole system with that Wiradjuri perspective. Mm -hmm. And just their attitudes and their their ways of being able to deal with Aboriginal people, it's remarkable compared to the cohort before them, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and even some of the policing students, some of the ambulance students, like um, there's, a, there's a, I think most of the faculties now are engaging with kind of the Wiradjuri perspective in some way or another in, mm. along the Bathurst campus. Um, and the hope is that when there are professionals out there in the world 
working in an ambulance, they'll be able to treat Wiradjuri people in a well, the, differently in some the, way? The, the idea is that they'll be able to understand the backstory. Mm. So instead of seeing, you know, some apparently loudmouth, irate Aboriginal person, they're going to understand, okay, there's intergenerational trauma at play here. Mm-hmm. This person isn't just this person. This person is the suffering and the pain that's happened to the generations before them. And then maybe they can find different ways of dealing with that person in a more Mm. compassionate way, in a more holistic way. Mm. Um, So the idea is that we equip um, the people that are doing, particularly around education, um, the people that are doing the immersions with ways of dealing with our people that are more beneficial to our people Mm. rather than institutionalising them and locking them up and being racist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we also we also get just other community groups and schools, um, like little school, like primary schools. Um, we've had a whole bunch of lawyers from different areas come across from different towns mm-hmm. to participate in our immersions. We've had kids from Redfern. Um, we've had international visitors. Um Pretty much, yeah, really a really wide array of people mm. um, from all different backgrounds. Um, but a lot of most of the most of the people that we take on immersion are to do with some sort of education, um, mm. whether they're students or whether they're lecturers or teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, but some something to do with education is normally mm. the common the common thing. Seems like that could have huge impact into the future. You know, the new generations understanding the yeah. story. And you take them out into country for, a, is it a day or oh, so? Oh, it varies, yeah. yeah. We can take them from half a day to a four-day wow. kind of deal. Mm. Depends on what they are trying to do or what they're trying to, you know, what knowledge is they're trying to get in touch with mm-hmm. or um, what their KPIs are or that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, or we do the in-classroom stuff, so we talk about cultural safety, mm. um, not just for Aboriginal people but for other people of culture. Um and we set up sort of protocols with most of the immersions and, and sessions that we do. We always set up a cultural safety protocol first so that people understand that there's a certain respect in the space that we're working and so that they can feel comfortable in asking questions that they might think are difficult to ask outside of that context. Mm. And it's by letting people have the space to ask those difficult questions. That's, that's, that's where we get the answers. Mm. That's where we get them the answers, you know. Um, and there's not many questions we haven't heard before, so it's it's about giving people that little bit of freedom and a little bit of a prompt to go, well, you know, go for it. What's the wildest question you could think of to ask us? You're safe to ask us mm. in this space. Mm. So much potential for really fruitful dialogue between those two value systems. Yeah, mm. yeah, mm. yeah. So we, we engage with the engineering students as well, and um, one of the remarkable things to come out of that is that we're able to give them, I guess, that insight into the importance of Mother Earth mm. to us. And and we, we kind of have the opportunity then to talk to them about, you know, what's, what's the way that you can do your job, keep your client happy, but also respect what's actually here, mm. um, minimal impact sort of stuff. And so that's sort of coming into vogue with, with engineering circles is that minimal impact, minimal footprint, that mm. kind of stuff. So... You know, it's it's happening. It's working. It's just slow. <laughs> so good to hear it's happening in engineering. Yeah, it's really important.
Is there anything else that you would like to add, you know, that I haven't asked that I should have? <laughs> I guess I did mention before about, you know, a lot of Aboriginal people kind of not understanding or knowing fully about their their lineage and their spirituality and all that sort of stuff. I, I just encourage any of those people that are listening um, that are Aboriginal that don't really know about who they are and about their spirituality and all that stuff. I just encourage them to get hold of the elders that are closest to you um, in your town or the town that you're from or in the town that you're living in now. Find those people, connect with them, let them know you're on country. So if you know that you're somewhere that you're off country, you're not on your own country, I encourage you people to get in touch with the elders from where you are now and say, I'm here. Mm. Show your cultural manners. Um, start that relationship. Start that yarn um, and ask questions. Ask about your family history. Ask about your own spirituality. Ask about your lineage. Um, I just yeah, really encourage those people that aren't really quite aware of all that stuff to just find it, mm. seek it. Um, it's really liberating. Um, it's it can be really hard. Um, so you know, uh, if people want to get hold of me for any reason, if mm. I can help, um, please feel free to contact Raham and they can mm. give you my email address. Um, and for the people that do know who they are, um, keep dancing, keep doing ceremony, stay strong, stay deadly, <laughs> love your mom. <laughs> that is just beautiful. You're adorable. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing um, your beautiful journey into your own identity and to representing this country uh, so proudly and with such strength and courage. We here at Rahman have so much to learn from you and we look forward to really supporting you in your work into the future as you kind of straddle those two worldviews. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity and I just want to add one more thing. Um, the opinions that I've given today, they are mine. Mm. Um, yeah. they, they, uh, I'm not speaking on behalf of Mom. Mm. Um, I'm not speaking on behalf of the other elders of this place. I'm speaking purely from my perspective. So I just want that to be clear. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank you. The Thresholds team at Rahamim live, work and create this podcast on the lands which have always been and always will be Wiradjuri country. We give our respect and gratitude to the elders past, present and emerging who continue to teach us ancient wisdom for living in harmony within Earth's limits. Rahamim Ecology Centre is an ecological ministry of the Sisters of Mercy of Australia and Papua New Guinea facilitating a new worldview for our times and our relationship with the natural world through education, spirituality and advocacy. For more information about us and our programs, please visit www.rahamim, that's R-A-H-A-M for Mary, I-M for Mary, .org.au. The Thresholds podcast is edited by Anastasia Freeman.